It's blazing hot outside. You get in your car to turn on the AC to get cold air pumping, but it blows hot air out. This issue is commonly caused by low refrigerant due to leaks in the AC system. You want an easy, all-in-one solution that will restore the cold air in no time. AC Pro Recharge Kits. Make restoring cold air easy for even those with zero DIY experience in less than 10 minutes. Save time and money versus going to a shop by picking up an AC Pro Recharge Kit today. Be a pro with AC Pro. Now, on the Rico B Gmail, I was called out for some of my opinions on Brandon Nimmo, and I want to address that. Jimmy Kearney writes, I got to call you out, Evan. Left field needs to be filled, but this talk of moving Nimmo, that's an extension of the feelings you've expressed on two segments this season. June 22nd, ripping Nimmo, and August 17th, what happened to Brandon Nimmo? <laughs> I love that Jimmy has cited the specific podcast from this past season that has caused my rippage of Brandon Nemo, which I'll defend in a second. But let's hear more from Jimmy. You knocked Nemo on his defense, lack of base stealing on base, etc. However, a month earlier, you argued Nemo may be the best of center, best defensive center fielder in Met history, surpassing Beltron. I tried to get through and make a case for Nemo, and you promised a deep dive. But why would one be necessary? He arguably put up a career season after signing his big contract. I think he's gone unnoticed because of the crap season. But one, to expect him to steal bases after proving he's good, after never proving he's good at it is ridiculous. His on base has always hovered around 370. This year was no different. Identical batting averages of 274 and 22 and 23 with better power numbers. An offensive upgrade in the outfield is a must. And if they bring in a center fielder who can lead off and move Nimmo to left field, I have no arguments with that. But the idea Nimmo has lost a step because he made a few boneheaded defensive plays after the season was in the toilet is pure garbage. With Marte out for the season, Nimmo has never steadily been a corner outfielder. So if I need to give possible weak excuse for his defensive dip, how's that? Leave Brandon Nimmo alone. Okay. A couple of things. I think Brandon Nimmo, and it's not a couple of boneheaded plays, though there were a couple of boneheaded plays. The ones that jump out of me, I think there was one against the Phillies. There was one against the Yankees. He had some bad defensive moments this season. But I think he went backwards defensively. I stand by that. I do. Because I think that his first step in center field, which has always been a little bit slow, but he's made up for it over the last couple of years by basically catching everything he gets to. I just think watching him this year, he was off a little bit. Now, he wasn't the same guy defensively. Now, I don't think it's a must to move him off center field. I think that if you can get a better defensive center fielder and you're looking to fix left field, I don't think it's the worst thing in the world to just shift him to left. But that's not dumping him out of center field. I think based on this discussion we've had so far in this podcast, I'm open-minded to anybody that's a human being that's an outfielder. If the guy's good, if the guy helps, bring him in. And the reality is there aren't a lot of center fielders that are better. There just aren't. So the odds are Brandon Nimmo is going to be the opening day center fielder next year. I don't have a big problem with that. It's more I'm calling him out for what I thought was a subpar defensive season. As far as his offensive numbers are concerned, I mean, you're not wrong when you say, hey, look at the basic numbers. They all kind of fall out the same way. His OPS was up by 29 points. His slugging was up. His on-base was virtually the same. His batting average was the same. His home runs were up by eight. 
essentially all of his numbers were the same. One stat where he dipped, not entirely his fault, is runs scored. That's because people aren't driving him in. But the other thing that jumped up, I'd say rather significantly, is he struck out a lot more. His strikeouts really jumped up. Last year, he struck out 17% of the time, which was his lowest rate of his major league career. This year, it jumped back up to 21%, which is more around his career numbers. So his strikeouts went up. His hard hit rate went down quite a bit. But overall, I mean, when you look at his numbers, they do kind of feel similar. I don't think the Mets need to replace Brandon Nimmo by any stretch. I just think that if you can go out and get a better defensive center fielder, you shift the guy to left field. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I think it'd be fine in left field. I don't think the adjustment would be all that bad. One other thing about Brandon Nemo is that his numbers kind of got, and this is what I mean by deep dive, Jimmy. I think his numbers got pushed up a lot by the last month and a half to two months of the season. And that doesn't mean it doesn't count. It's like we talk about Jeff McNeil. And I'm not comparing the seasons that both guys had. But Jeff McNeil, we'd admit, when you look at his final numbers, they're not nearly as bad as the way they looked in July when the season essentially ended. He had a very good month and a half that buoyed his numbers up a little bit. Brandon Nemo had an atrocious month of July. And that month of July was when the season was spiraling out of control. doesn't mean I blame him for it. I'm not saying the collapse was because of him. I think the collapse was almost because of everybody. But I think his final numbers turned out to look a lot better than the way they felt in the midst of the season. But overall, he's one of their most important players. I mean, let's not kid ourselves. If the Mets are going to have success in 2024, they're going to need Brandon Nemo to be one of their better players and go out there and play every day. But I give you an example of what I mean by that. When the month of July ended and you go back to that Baltimore series, and that's really where the Kansas City series before that, but the Baltimore series where the season was essentially over, Brandon Nimmo was at 256-784, which is, eh, it's eh, wasn't great. But then he had a very, very hot August, a really good September, and his, all of a sudden his numbers, which started at 260 on August 30th, ended at 274. An OPS that was below 800 on August 30th ends up above 800. So that's all I mean. I get it. You can't hold that against them. Like your final numbers are your final numbers. But when you think about this failure of a season, him having just a brutal July was a part of it. Anyhow, here are some of the trade options to keep an eye on. We've gone through some of the free agents, which I obviously prefer because it just means you sign a guy for money. You don't have to trade anything. And by the way, the trade options are not great. We'll start off with some of the lower end guys. Right-handed hitting outfielder Tyler O'Neill from the St. Louis Cardinals. He's not much of a hitter, but he's really good defensively. In fact, he won a couple of gold gloves in 2020-2021. He's 28 years old. He's got one more year of arbitration before he's a free agent. Would I take him as a fourth outfielder? Sure. I don't want to give up much. Manuel Margot. We've heard his name a little bit over the last couple of weeks, and I can't really figure out why. He did not play well when he played last year. He's never been a great offensive player. Kind of floats in the high 600s OPS-wise. 
And defensively, I was looking at his advanced defensive metrics. They're not good either. So I, I got to tell you, I'm not sure the appeal of Manuel Margot. Why? Because he had some big hits against the Mets? That ain't enough of a reason. Another outfielder from St. Louis to keep an eye on is Dylan Carlson. Dylan Carlson's got a few more years of control, so that's certainly appealing for him. He showed flashes offensively in his rookie season in 2021, but the last couple of years, he's a light-hitting, switch-hitting outfielder. Again, eh, would be my answer. Here's a guy I am intrigued by. Final year of arbitration, final year of his contract with Minnesota, Max Kepler. Max Kepler was such a candidate to have a breakout season for 2023. I think a lot of the advanced metrics kind of showed that. And he went out and he did it. He had 260. He had 24 home runs, had an 816 OPS, left-hand hitting right fielder would be a very nice upgrade in the outfield. What you have to give up, that's the scary part. And the appealing part about Max is he is a suitable player against left-handed pitching. He's not a guy that you have to sit because there's a lefty on the mound. So I'm interested in Kepler, but I think the real question is going to be, what do you have to give up? What's the price tag? Another guy, arbitration eligible this year, then a free agent, is Alex Verdugo. Really good defensively, has never lived up to the hype that I think he had after his first year in Boston when he was a part of that Mookie Betts trade. But another guy who... You could stick out and would be a pretty good upgrade in the outfield. Comes down to price tag. Here's the real intriguing one. And this guy's clearly available. And I can't imagine the price tag is that high. But this is one of those high rewards kind of guys that you go after. Last couple of years, you haven't gotten it from him. But maybe he puts it all together and stays healthy. And that's Eloy Jimenez of the Chicago White Sox. He's more of a DH than an outfielder. dh a lot more then played the outfield last year for Chicago. But he's not unplayable in the outfield. He's on a very team-friendly contract. I think he's making about $7 million a year. And then there's team options in 2025 and 2026. The problem with Eloy Jimenez is he has just never come close to what he did as a rookie when he had 31 home runs in 2019. He's missed a lot of time, missed 40 games last year, missed 90 games the year before. Missed 100 games the year before that. What are you getting from Eloy Jimenez? And it comes back to the same question. What do you have to give up? Here's a guy I really like, and I think I mentioned him as part of fake trades a year ago for Carlos Carrasco, but the Baltimore Orioles weren't stupid, so they didn't make the trade. And that's Anthony Santander, who backed up his really strong 2022 by putting out pretty much the same numbers. Hit 28 home runs as a switch hitting outfielder, drove in 95 runs, has an 800 OPS. I think the problem would be, even though he's a free agent at the end of the year, so the idea of the Orioles trading him is not nuts, but what's the deal that makes sense? Like, what would make the Orioles trade Anthony Santander right now? They're trying to win at this moment, so is there a win-now player that kind of fits back? Lane Thomas is coming off a really strong year for the Washington Nationals. I think the worry with Lane Thomas, who's still only 28 years old, is, is he really what he was last year? Like, is he now proven to be an everyday solid major leaguer at 28 years old? Had a really good year for Washington. It was almost surprising that he'd trade him before the trade deadline. But he is a trade option for the Nationals. Two more years of control, 
get Lane Thomas, get a couple of those national relievers, not too bad. But the real dream trade I have, and I've mentioned this on Rico before, I tweeted about it, I'd say a week or two ago, is when the news came out that the Chicago White Sox are open for business. Yeah, you hear about Eloy Jimenez, we just talked about. But the real apple of my eye would be Luis Robert Jr. Center, field girl, center fielder, gold glover, 26 years old, 38 home runs last year. It would cost a lot. And that would be the one rare trade where I would be willing to open up the cabinets of, of my farm system. I don't want to trade a lot of young players right now this season, but mostly I don't want to do it for one-year rentals. We're talking about Luis Robert Jr., and we're talking about Dylan Cease. Let's go. So those are some of your trade options, free agent options, internal options. So where do I stand? Where I stand is this. I, I am intrigued by Jung Ho Lee. He'd my number one option. My number two option would be a Jock Peterson, Robbie Grossman platoon. I know that's not that appealing, and I'm sure I got people going, oh, come on, Evan, give me more. Look, I'm just giving you a realistic option. Where else you going? <laughs> you know, <laughs> If it's not Jung Ho Lee and the White Sox aren't trading Luis Robert Jr., you know, we went through a lot of these options. Where are you going? And I do prefer to buy a free agent as opposed to trading young assets away, especially for guys that are not that good. So if it's not going to be Jung Ho Lee, if you're not going to gamble on the international market like they appear to be doing with Yamamoto, the Peterson-Grossman platoon gives you two bodies in that outfield. One guy mashes righties. One guy mashes lefties. Let's go. Your thoughts on what they should do in left field. The Rico B at gmail.com. The Rico B at gmail.com. Speaking of the mailbag, let's read a few. Michael Capozzi writes, guys love the show. What do you think if we lose out on Otani, Yamamoto, and even Blake Snell and Jordan Montgomery? If none of the high-priced pitching options choose the Mets, what's your thoughts on filling out the roster? What does 2024 become? I've been thinking about how the roster will look next year and dreaming about a new ace, but what happens if we can't land any player who signs for $100 million plus? Love an episode where is this discussed. I tried to put a roster together, but it's not easy. So if they miss out on uh, Otani and Yamamoto, and I assume they're going to miss out on Otani, but you never know, and I also assume they're not that hot for Blake Snell. So let's make this simple. If they miss out on Yamamoto, where do they go? I think they're going to look at the trade market. As much as I'm not intrigued by trading young players for one-year rentals, Corbin Burns, Shane Bieber, I think they talked to Cleveland and Milwaukee about them. I think they talked to Chicago about Dylan Cease. If that doesn't work, I think what you're looking at is a lot of short-term, let's see, Maybe we get a career year out of a guy options, whether it's Luis Severino and Jack Flaherty and guys of that ilk. I don't think they're going to feel compelled to push out multi-year contracts just because they missed out on the number one target. And that's what I think we all fear, that if they miss out on Yamamoto, that's why I started the pod by saying it makes the offseason so much easier. Because if you sign Yamamoto and all of a sudden you now move on with Yamamoto, Senga, Quintana as your front three, you feel as if, ah, eh, no big deal. I'll take a flyer back of the rotation on Severino or whomever. But if you miss out on Yamamoto, your rotation may be filled out with gambles. 
And that's a scary thought. And it certainly hurts our hopes in going into 2024. Now, how are we going to have high hopes if the rotation is Senga, Quintana, and basically Prey? Junior writes, I got a question for you guys. I want to see what you guys think about this trade. I'm a big Pete Alonzo fan. I don't want to trade him, but does this make sense? Uh Pete Alonzo and Jeff McNeil for Vladimir Guerrero Jr. and Alex Manoa. Well, let's start with this. Alex Manoa, by the way, on its separate kind of separate level, basically connected to our last email about starting pitching is a very intriguing buy low option. But what I just said was buy low option. By low option, not a guy who's the centerpiece of a Pete Alonso trade. No, I know the centerpiece is Vladimir Guerrero Jr. Vladimir Guerrero Jr. is an outstanding player who I think his year in 2021, with all due respect to Pete, is better than any year Pete had. So if somehow the Blue Jays were ever in the market of trading Vladimir Guerrero Jr., as much as I love Pete Alonso, forget Alec Manoa for a second, you're making that trade. Despite Guerrero not having a great year last year and actually going backwards the last two years, I think when you factor in his age, when you factor in how good defensively he is, when you factor in the best year of his career in 2021 was probably better than any year Pete had, you probably make that trade. But I don't think the Blue Jays are. I know Vladimir Guerrero still has a few more years of arbitration eligibility, but my assumption would be they want to keep him forever. They would have no intentions of trading him away. Ed Flood writes, oh, I, you know what? I'm not going to read this one because Ed Flood wants to attack Pete. And since Pete isn't here, I'll save that for the next Rico so Pete can respond. That that, that has to be the, the fairest way to do it. I, I can't just, I just can't read it and have Pete bashed and say, yeah, I don't know why Pete did that. <laughs> Wait till the next Rico, but don't worry. We got a Rico in a couple of days. Uh, appreciate all the emails. Can't get to all of them, but we will certainly get to as many as we can as the off season rolls on the Rico B at gmail.com, the Rico B at gmail.com. We appreciate you listening. Any feedback on left field, any guys we may have missed again, email the Rico B at gmail.com. A lot of Rico's coming up, including breaking news as it starts to come out. And we'll focus on another position group that the Mets may have to look at. What position group is that, you ask? Well, second base. If Jeff McNeil is indeed moved to the outfield, are there second base options for the Mets to look at besides the internal ones they have? We'll focus on that in a couple of days. We appreciate you listening and downloading another edition of Rico Brony. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Rico Bronya podcast. It's amazing, isn't it? Make sure you download it now to keep it on you at all times.